Good morning, Harvest Church. How's everybody doing? Good to see you. We are in a series that I've really been enjoying called The Four Circles. I'm going to invite you to turn to our text in Acts chapter 1 in just a moment. You can turn there now. It's fine. And we're going to read it in just a moment. How about that? All right, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but, everybody say but, but. that's a conjunction, it connects things, conjunction, junction, what's your function? It connects verse 7 to verse 8. They're saying, when are you restoring the kingdom? And Jesus said, that's important, but here's something else that's a higher priority, and that is when you Receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. My Spirit's going to come upon you to make you be something that you didn't used to be. And that is a witness. So he says, but when my Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be a witness. And then he mentions the four circles. Where we're supposed to be a witness? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Locally, in our region with people who are near us but different from us and internationally. So he said to the disciples, I know my spirit has already come on the inside of you because you've believed that I died for your sins and I was raised from the dead. I mean, you know, the disciples believed Jesus was raised from the dead because they were standing there talking to him. Yeah. He knew he was alive. So the God's spirit was in them. He had already breathed on them. <sighs> However he did it. Receive the Holy Spirit. So they were, he was in them. But now he said, but now my spirit's going to come upon you because you need my power and presence resting on your life to enable you to be a witness to those who haven't heard the good news yet. The word witness in the Greek is where we get our English word martyr from. And some of you are like, whoa, I don't know about that. Don't sign me up for that one just yet. No, no, no. He's just saying, he's not saying if you're a witness or if you're spirit-filled or Baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be a martyr. No, he's saying that you're going to be such a passionate believer. You're going to be so convicted and have such passion that you're going to be willing to die for what you believe. Some I mean, that's when you really believe it. So he said, passionate believers. My spirit will come upon you. It's like I got this jacket on. I'm going to clothe you with my spirit. So wherever you go, my spirit goes. And he's going to enable you to do things that you couldn't do on your own. He's going to give you a boldness to be a passionate witness to share what you've seen and heard. Have you seen or heard God do anything in your life, anybody? Has he changed you? Has he saved you? Has he forgiven you? Has he healed you? Has he blessed you? Has he fixed your marriage? Has he not consulted your past to determine your future and to make it bright anyway? Yeah. So he says, I'm going to make you a passionate witness about what God's done for you. Everybody say passionate witness. Okay, that wasn't very passionate. Everybody say passionate witness. Passionate witness. Oh, that was pretty good over there. Over here, y'all didn't, y'all didn't, they were a lot louder. I'm just saying. Should I give them another chance? Will y'all help them? In the first service, this side was louder. I don't know what happened. So y'all help them out. All right, everybody say passionate witness. Passionate that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I heard one person especially over there. Good job. Good job. And then the Bible says... He spoke these things to them, and they watched while he was taken up in a cloud and received out of their sight. Now, 
He wasn't gone. They just couldn't see him anymore. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he left his spirit here in the earth. He's out of our sight, but he's very much alive and well. I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. Now, the writer of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke. He was a medical doctor, Dr. Luke. He chronicled what he saw. He was a witness, and he wrote it down in the book of Acts. He also, the gospel of Luke was dictated to him, and he also lended his writing expertise to the gospel of Luke. And so he wrote two books in the New Testament that we're aware of. In Luke's gospels, he mentions a parable, actually a few parables that are not mentioned in any other gospels that Jesus shared. One of them is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, interestingly enough, I'm going to read to you something that a commentator wrote. I did some study research in the last couple of weeks. And you know what a commentator is, right? Or just a commentator <laughs> who has an education, so he, they wrote these big books. And so the parable of the Good Samaritan appears only in gospel, Luke's gospel. It's one of eight or nine uniquely Lucan parables that, pre, that are not present in any of the other gospels. And most of the parables unique to Luke focus on wealth and possessions. So far, so good, right? Yeah. Let's continue. Far from imparting quaint moral lessons or heavenly truths, Jesus' parables tend to disturb and disorient the hearers. Are you ready to be disturbed and disoriented this morning? <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, I didn't think that's what I was signing up for. But... And by assaulting and dismantling conventional views that we hold. How many know Jesus will mess you up yeah. in a good way? Yeah. He wants to change our thinking, doesn't he? The same question that the lawyer stood up to ask in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler asked that same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered in the same way. Number one, he says, eternal life is found in God's word. Number two, it requires you to divest oneself of your wealth and possessions and give your resources to the poor and the needy. Ooh. That does not sound fun. But it's in the Bible, so what do we do? Say, so, I thought y'all were a health and wealth church. Well, we are, because that's better than being a sickness and poverty church. You've probably been to that one. That's why you're here. <laughs> but I want to bring a little balance because while I don't necessarily think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think... We're not a health and wealth church because God necessarily wants me to ride around in a Mercedes G-Wagon and fly around the world in a G7 jet, though I'm, I'm willing if he needs me to. <laughs> but I believe God wants us to be, and has called us to be a health and wealth church so that we can use our health and our wealth to help people that are most desperately poor, and that is people who have never heard the gospel. And by the way, if you were wondering, almost 3 billion people on planet Earth, about 2.8 or 9 billion people, that's a lot, have never even heard the name of Jesus on planet Earth today. I've met some of them in my own lifetime. I went to a village in India and asked them, hey, where, where, why are you here? We've never seen white people before. I'm like, well, we're here to tell you about Jesus Christ. Have you heard of Jesus Christ? They said, yes, that's that new American soft drink. I was like, no. 
And then we went to another place, and I asked this old man, do you know Jesus Christ? And he goes, ah, which factory does he work at? And it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. But we are called to divest ourselves of our wealth and our health so that people who have not heard the gospel can hear the gospel. Now, let me tell you this, because we're talking about the Good Samaritan today. That's people that are near us that are different from us. There's about 600 churches in the Mobile area. But about 85% of our city doesn't even go to church. Amazing. So I get happy when I hear about another church being planted. I'm like, great, because we've got to reach people. Amen. Studies have shown that in a city our size, with the number of churches we have, there should be about 25 churches at least with about 2,500 people that attend them regularly. Now, in our city, I've been thinking about it. I can only think of five or six, maybe. Maybe. So, look around. See any empty blue chairs? We have wealth and we have health, and we need to be a good Samaritan. Let's talk about it today. Now, um, let's get there. Luke 10. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 10. Open it on your smart device, Luke 10. We're going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan today. And while on the surface, this parable is a story about how we should reach out to people near us, around us, that are different from us. This particular story is someone who is ethnically different. One more thing about Luke's writings, he often takes people that were social outcasts of the day, like women, they were social outcasts of the day, uh, physically impaired people, lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, and he told the story in such a way that they were the model of right behavior. And it messed people's thinking up. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. How many know that God, he, he's saying in the parables, I'm not going to consult your past to determine whether or not you can do the right thing. Because no matter what you've done, you can still make right decisions today and do the right thing and be who God's called you to be, destined you to be today. Whether you're a tax collector, a leper, a prostitute, or a woman. I'm just kidding about the woman part because they're not social outcasts today, but they were back then. And no matter what your station is in life, you can do the right thing. So Luke was, God used Luke to, to help mess with our thinking so that we think more like him. All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Are you there? Luke. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus. How many know Jesus always passed the test, didn't he? Yeah. And he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? So he answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, the lawyer, wanting to, uh, he said, you answered rightly, do this and live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem, from heaven, to Jericho, the world. Now this is, here's what I want to tell you today. On the surface, while this parable is about Doing good to those near you that are different from you, there's something much deeper that I want to point out to you today. There is an encoded prophetic message locked inside of this parable, and it's time released. 
How many of you take vitamins? Okay, I take vitamins, and they're time-released. I took them a couple of hours ago, but they're being released into my system right now. Over time, so I get the benefit of them. So God put a prophetic message in this parable, and it's just now time for it to be released. Because it's, it's necessary right now. And so a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem represents heaven. Jericho represents the world. This, so the man who went down from, he, from heaven to the world, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, is Adam. God breathed into him the breath of life. But the Bible says over the process of time, we'll keep reading, that this certain man, he fell amongst thieves. Thieves. Can you think of a thief that Adam might have fallen to? The Bible says that Satan comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. There are the thieves. And all of a sudden, they attack this man. And the Bible says in the parable that he was stripped of his clothing, wounded, and they departed, leaving him half dead. He was stripped, wounded, left half dead. Now, the fish have scales, animals have fur, um, birds have feathers. What was man clothed with? The glory of God. But Satan came and stripped man of his glory, wounded him. How many of we all have hurts from our past? hang-ups, generational things we've inherited that we wish we hadn't in our personality. And there was Adam, half dead. What do you mean half dead? God said, when you sin, when you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Well, he ate, he sinned, but he didn't physically die. He was still physically alive, mentally alive, but spiritually dead, half dead. Right? You see it? So the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho represents Adam, mankind. In other words, he represents you and me. Wounded, half dead, stripped of our glory, laying there, helpless, embarrassed, but can't do anything about it in our own strength. Let's keep reading. And by the way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, leaving him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. This represents the law, Moses, and all that. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. How many know religion ain't never done nobody no good? Pardon my English. And then it says that he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place... Came, looked, passed by on the other side. Again, religion never saved anybody. Religion never did anybody any good. I want to just say, as the video keeps rolling, that religion is man's efforts to reach God, but they always fall short. But genuine, true Christianity, now I know some Christianity is religion also, but real Christianity is not our efforts to reach God, it's God's efforts to reach us. And that's where this next verse comes in. It says, let's keep reading, verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, 
Everybody say certain. A certain Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came where the man was. Now, Samaritans ethnically were considered half-breeds. They were part Jewish, but their bloodline had been polluted hundreds of years ago, and they had intermingled, so they were part Jewish, but they were also part something else. And because of that, the pure Jews despised the Samaritans, and they lived near each other, but there was great prejudice. And the Samaritans knew the Jews didn't like them, and so therefore the Samaritans didn't like the Jews because the Jews didn't like them. It was a vicious circle, cycle. And you might hear overhear a Samaritan say something like, well, you know, 150 years ago, your grandparents did this to my parents, and there was just resentment there. Sound familiar? And Luke and Jesus, they convey this story to us that is supposed to help us to overcome our racism and prejudices. And in fact, in this story, it's not the pure-blood Jew who's the hero. It's the half-breed, the one that was discriminated against. Interesting, isn't it? So, but I want to tell you who the Samaritan represents. The Samaritan, the half-breed, represents Jesus. Because, after all, he's mixed, isn't he? He's 100% man, born of a virgin, but he's also 100% God. So wait a minute, that doesn't make mathematical sense. Shouldn't he be 50-50? How many of Jesus mathematically will blow your mind? (laughs) He's all God and all man. Theologically, it's called the hypostatic union. But what it basically means is is he's all man and he's all God. How can that be? Well, that's where that all God part comes in. And he's all man so that he can relate to so that he can do what the Samaritan did. He came where he was. Jesus came where we were. And he found us laying there in our own self-righteous superiority, but yet wounded, naked, stripped, unable to take care of ourselves, half dead. He came to where he was, and the Bible says that the Samaritan had compassion on him. Aren't you glad Jesus had compassion on us? The point of compassion is to give sight to those who cannot see. Every time the blind came to Jesus, he had compassion on them, and he restored their sight. When you came to Jesus, he had compassion on you, and he gave you your sight spiritually so that you could see. Because I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I love it when people say, I found Jesus. Like, no, you didn't. <laughs> Jesus wasn't lost. You were. <laughs> he found you. It was his goodness and his grace that led you and brought you to the foot of the cross where you repented of your sin. Jesus is the half-breed. And he came and he had compassion. And it goes on to say, let's keep reading. Verse 34. So he went, he bandaged his wounds. This is, this is freedom ministry. Then it goes on to say, he poured in or poured on oil and wine. That's representative of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, oil and wine, pain relief, medicine. How many of Jesus will cure what ails you? It goes on to say, he set him on his own animal. Because the half-dead man 
couldn't get anywhere on his own. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. What do you think the inn represents? I heard a few whispers. The church. Jesus saved us and he planted the church in the earth. He brought us and he connected us to the local church. So Jesus gives us an example of him in scripture going to where people are, loving them in the condition that they're in, even though they might hate him, he loved them anyway, put them on his own animal, and he brought them to the inn or to the local church. Jesus gives us an example of bringing people to church. So let me ask you a question. Are we supposed to bring people to church? Okay. Let me ask the other 70% of you. Are we supposed to bring people to church? What kind of people? Any people, all people, especially those that are hurt, wounded, half dead, maybe people that are even different from us, especially those that are near us that are different from us. Now, of course we're supposed to love people of different races, of different religions, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, of different ages, different genders, but the number one difference... The number one kind of person we're supposed to go to and love and bring to church are the people that are different from us spiritually, those who are half dead who don't know Jesus. How can four or five hundred of us get together every Sunday and worship God and worship Jesus and get along and be in small groups together and go visit each other in the hospital and go eat in each other's homes? How? Because we're all ethnically different, different backgrounds, different jobs, different incomes. What makes us get along? When you're in church, the right answer is always... Jesus. Right? Well, in the majority of the rest of our city, on Sundays, it's the most segregated part of the week. That's not, tr- that's not so here. But even while I rejoice in that, and that's one of my favorite things about this church, is our, is our diversity. I want to challenge us today to reach a little further because there's a lot of people out there that are different from us because they're lost and they're blind and they're wounded and they're on their way to hell and a lot of them don't even know it. So we have an example here of Jesus showing us that we need to bring hurting people to the end. We got to get them in. Get them in the end. What's the end? It's the church. Okay? Can we keep going? He brought them to the end, the local church, and took care of him. He put him in a small group. If you're not in a small group, you're missing out on part of your care. Verse 35. On the next day, when he departed. Now, why, why did he depart? Because he had fulfilled his mission. It says in verse 35. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Two denarii. That's two days' wages. Gave them to the innkeeper. Who do you think the innkeeper is? It's kind of like zookeeper, but slightly different. I'm the sheep keeper. <laughs> and let me tell you, sheep happens. <laughs> You're a pastor. He gave the two days' wages 
to the innkeeper, to the pastor, who also I think represents the Holy Spirit. In other words, you need to make sure you have a spirit-filled pastor, ideally. It doesn't always you know, make them, you know, it's not that it makes them better, but I'll say it this way. You need all the help you can get. Amen. If you're a pastor, you need the Holy Ghost helping you. So he gave the two days wages to the pastor, and this is what he said to him. He said, take care of him. Now, what's the pastor supposed to do with the money? Take care care of them. And then he says, and whatever more you spend. I mean, Jesus knew we were going to blow the budget. (laughs) And whatever more you spend. Ready for this next phrase? When I come again. Say it with me. When I come again, he did not say, if I come again, he said, when I come again, I will repay you. Now, historically, most historians believe that Jesus was born somewhere around 6 to 4 B.C., He lived 33 and a half years. He died on the cross and was raised again three days later. And so that means that Jesus died somewhere between 26 and 30 A.D., approximately. I don't have time to tell you all this, but prophetically speaking, a day represents a thousand years. Because with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So Jesus said, here's two days' wages. When I come again, well, if he gave two days' worth of supply, when does that hint that he's coming again? On, after two days, on the third day. So he's saying, after 2,000 years, like MacArthur and Schwarzenegger said, I'll be back. <laughs> so if Jesus died around 26 to 30 A.D., 2,000 years later, or two days later, is approximately 2,026 to 2,030. Yeah, but pastor, no man knows the day or the hour. That's true. That's why I'm not telling you the day or the hour. I'm telling you the decade. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm right? Uh, Yes, sir. He said, tell him. (laughs) What if I'm right? So what if we have 10 to 11 years left before Jesus comes? How would you live differently if you knew we had a decade left before the return of the Lord? Would you divest yourself of your wealth and your resources to make sure that those that are the most vulnerably poor had the opportunity to hear the gospel? The three billion people on planet earth that have never heard it. What would you do if you knew we only had 10 or 11 years left to get the job done? So this parable to me highlights the urgency of the fulfilling of the great commission. Jesus is saying, yeah, be good to those around you. They're different than you, but I'm coming back. And I'm giving you a hint as to when I'm coming back. And it's soon. I've heard that my whole life, Pastor. We're in the last days. Well, well, now we're really in the last days. And what if all that's not true? You're in your last days. What you going to do? Because you will stand before Jesus one day and give an account. Now, are you saying, Pastor, that we need to... 
you know, sell everything and give it to the church. Okay, no. What I'm saying is God can afford to bless you and to get the gospel out, but he only does that with people that are getting the gospel out. Amen. We did our taxes. Um, we're doing our taxes. You know, it's kind of a process. And uh, my wife, she said, do you know how much money we gave last year? I said, give me a percentage. She said, well, we need to talk about our budget. I said, okay. I'm I'm all about the budget. She said, we gave almost 25% of our income away last year. I said, praise God. We're almost at 50%. She's like, well, if that's what you want to do, we need to have a budget meeting. I'm like, well, let's have a meeting because I don't want to change our giving. I want to give more. I want to be one of those dudes who actually practices what he preaches. Amen. Telling y'all, give 10%, give 10%, and then trust God and give more. I don't want to be that guy who, you know, I'm not even on the top 10 list of the givers of my church, home church. I want to outgive all y'all. Amen. Amen. And I'm in the top. But I'm daring you. Come on, knock me off. I'm in second place right now. Who's going to knock me off? Let's go. <laughs> Bring it. Literally, bring it. (laughs) In Proverbs 31, we get a description of what a virtuous woman looks like and how she conducts herself, her protocol, if you will. But then in Proverbs 7, we get a different description of a different woman. She's called the whorish woman. She acts and dresses totally different than the virtuous woman. You've seen them both around. You know what I'm talking about. But then we have Joseph. He's in prison And Pharaoh calls him up to the big leagues. But before he goes and appears before Pharaoh, they bathe him, they shave him, they put new clothes on him. Why? He changes his appearance. He adapts his appearance to increase his acceptance. He's following protocol. And there's lots in Scripture about protocol. And I believe those who do not follow proper protocol are typically dangerous people and you should be aware of them. However... Jesus gives this Samaritan, Good Samaritan parable... To tell us there's a time to ignore protocol. And we ignore protocol when the time is urgent and the need is desperate. So the Samaritans were lower class Jews, and Jesus tells his disciples one day, He's like, Hey, look, y'all, I need to go somewhere, but let's go through Samaria. And they're like, No, Jesus, let's go the long way. We don't go through there. That's the wrong side of the tracks, man. And Jesus said, Nope, we're going through Samaria. They're like, Are you serious? We have to, oh gosh. Those guys, they stink, and they're act right. And, and Jesus said, come on, shut up, let's go. So they go through Samaria, and then he goes, uh, uh, y'all go get some food. I'm going to sit here by the well. And when they come back to the well, they find him not only talking to a Samaritan, but to a Samaritan woman. This is like double damage. They're like, what is wrong? What's gotten into him? And then he starts talking to this Samaritan woman, and she's blown away. She's like, why are you even talking to me? You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. We're not even supposed to talk. And you're a man, and I'm a woman, and what's going on here? But Jesus perceived that her spiritual need was greater than the prejudice of the day or the protocol that had been established. So he ignored all that for the purpose of sharing the good news with her. I want to let you know that Jesus' return is imminent. He's coming soon. He's coming sooner than you think. And so now it's become urgent to tell the good news to people, maybe even people that are different from you, and bring them to church. 
So I had this creative meeting with my staff, and they talked me out of this, but I was going to hire a homeless guy to sit on the front door of our church today and just to see how everybody treated him while I talked about the Good Samaritan. They were like, no, Pastor, don't, don't do that. And I was like, well, I'm creating jobs. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So they were like, no, not a, I know, we know what you're trying to do. But so I submitted. And, but my thought is, is, who is it that we think, well, we can't bring them to church. I mean, after all, he's a surgeon. He's high and mighty. He would never come to my, my church. I mean, we just got a bunch of good old folk here. I mean, no, no, no. It's the people that are different from us. Or, or, or what about this guy? He, he's always in the bar, and he always misses Monday at work because he's hungover. And, and, yeah, bring that guy. Amen. Bring him. Amen. Well, I know her. She's got six different children from six different men, and she's shacking up. Mm-hmm. Invite her to church. Bring her because it's urgent. And if 85% of our city doesn't come to church, at least 90% of our city needs Jesus. So I got a great church growth program. Is if each of us would just bring one person to church on Easter, we'll double. It's basic math. The priest and the religious man. Remember those guys who walked around the hurting, wounded man? I want you to think about this. They were just as much thieves and robbers as the men that assaulted him. You know why? Because if you have the power and the ability to do good to someone and you don't do it, you're in error. So while I love our diversity our ethnic diversity, our socioeconomic diversity, what I'm challenging us as your pastor, as the zookeeper or the innkeeper, what I'm challenging us, Harvest Church, is for us to bring people that are spiritually wounded and half dead to church. Because those are the people that the church exists for. Amen. You ever thought, given it much thought, what you'd be like if you hadn't? Made Jesus the Lord of your life. Ezekiel chapter 3. I'm going to share two verses with you before we go. Ezekiel 3.17 says, Son of man. Everybody say, that's me. I have made you. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking to you. I have made you a watchman. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked man from his wicked way to save his life, that wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If you warn the wicked and he does not turn, he'll die in his iniquity, but at least you've delivered your own soul. So I encourage you to bring somebody to church for your own self, too. Because we're going to give an account. When we stand before God one day, Jesus is going to say, did you tell your neighbor? Did you invite? Well, no, Lord, I was trying to work out my own issues before I brought somebody else. Like that one guy at the gym told me one time, he goes, I'm inviting the church. He goes, well, I don't want to go spend an hour with a bunch of hypocrites. I said, well, then you can just go spend eternity with them. <laughs> I know y'all all got issues because I got my, my own. That's not the point. It's the point is who we're bringing our issues to. Amen. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. i got a question for you. Can we develop a capacity to love people independently of the identity of the one who needs it? 
Let me say it again. Can we develop the capacity to love people independently of their identity? Whether they deserve the love or not, can we love them anyway? If they're mean, rude, snide, gossip, smell bad, are high and mighty because they make money and they look down on you, whatever it might be, they're a different race than you, can we develop the capacity to love people who don't deserve it? Because that's what no perfect people allowed means. According to Romans chapter 5, yes, we can. This is the last verse I'm going to read to you today. Romans 5 and verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Maybe for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates. I love this verse. God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did he die for us? When we deserved it? When we cleaned up our act? When we started behaving better? When we started giving in the offering? None of that. When we were cursing his name, when we were defiling his legacy, when we were blemishing and tarnishing the image of God, he came where we were and he had compassion on us. And he poured on the oil and the wine and he picked us up out of our own sinful waste and put us on his own animal and he brought us to the end and he gave us to the care of an innkeeper and paid our bills and said, anything else he cost you while I'm gone? When I come back, I'll settle up with you. Put it on my tab. Put it on my tab. Put him, put her on my tab. Is there anybody that you know, whether they deserve your love or not, are you willing to put them on your tab? Here's my call to action to you today. There's only three things that you can give. You can give your time, you can give your talent, and you can give your treasure. Two calls to action today, and one of them is this. Next Saturday, this coming Saturday, April the 13th at 10 a.m., all the small groups are going to meet here, and we're going to go and we're going to walk neighborhoods and do two or three things. We're going to pray, we're going to hang door hangers, we're going to walk. We're going to walk, pray, and hang. Walk, pray, and hang. Would you come with us and walk and pray? We're not going to knock on doors and disturb people. I mean, if you want to do that, I, I, no, don't do that. We're going to walk, we're going to pray, and we're going to hang. We're going to pray for the people in the house. We're going to hang a door hanger. The door hanger, oh, I didn't bring one up here, but it says bring some money to church. And it's inviting them to come to Harvest Church on Easter Sunday at, 10, at 8.30, at 10 a.m., and at 11. Three services that day. Special day. So we're going to walk, pray, and hang. We're going to pray for people. We're going to hang an invite on their door. And we're going to keep walking to the next house. Here's your second call to action. As you leave today, the ushers are going to give you, those of you who want it or will, a little stack of these door hangers, about seven of them, because seven's Jesus' favorite number. So. And would you take these door hangers and would you hang them on your neighbor's doors? Say, well, I don't even like my neighbor. Perfect just what we preach today. Or my neighbor's one of my best friends. 
great. Because then you can actually knock on their door and talk to them and say, hey, I hung this on your door, but I just wanted to personally invite you to come to Easter service with me on that day. That's okay. I don't, I don't need it. They put it up on the screen. Thank you. They'll have them for you at the door when you leave. Would you take those and would you hang them on your neighbor's door? If you won't do it, don't take them because they cost money. And I'll take them home and I'll hang them on my neighbor's neighbor's door. Just don't waste them. We want to be good stewards. So that's your call to action today. Walk, pray, and hang on April 13th, next Saturday. And take them home. Hang them on your neighbor's doors. Invite them to church. Now... I also want to remind you that on Easter Sunday, we're receiving the Easter offering. It's an annual offering that we do. Half of it's going to help us reach people in India. Half of it's going to help us reach people here in Mobile. I'm going to send you a letter about it here soon. And we also have a project that we want to do, a kind of a campus improvement project with part of the money. I'll send you a letter about it soon. But I want to remind you that we give for the same reason that Jesus gave. And that's because of people. What did Jesus give? His life. We're not asking you to hang on a cross and die for anybody's sins. We're just asking you to help us tell other people that somebody already did that for them. How? Through your time, your talent, and your treasure. Would you take the challenge today? Would you take the invitation today? Will you come walk and pray and hang? Will you take some door hangers home? Will you bring somebody to church? We don't care how they smell. We don't care if they drive up in a Bentley or a Bug. We don't care if they pull up in an Uber or you fill in the blank or a bicycle. Okay, bring people that need Jesus. Bring the worst ones too, because those are the ones that God shows Himself off the most in their life, kind of like He did yours. Amen. Will you bow your heads? I want to pray for you, Lord. I pray for my congregation that you would give them courage and wisdom and boldness, like Acts 1-8 promises us, to be a witness to the Samaritans, to those that are broken and wounded and hurting and half dead. Give us the courage, the boldness to be a witness to those near us that are different from us, to love people whether they deserve that love or not. And Lord, I pray now that anybody here today that's never made Jesus the Lord of their life, that they would... Your goodness would draw them right now. And I want to pray for those of you who maybe you've not made Jesus ever the Lord of your life. Or maybe you're far from God and you need to return home. I'm not going to make you stand up or make you walk up front. But if you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life, you want me to include you in this prayer, just slip your hand up right now. Say, that's me, Pastor. I need to get right with God today. All right, God bless you. See your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. Three, four, five, six. God bless you. Anybody else? Awesome. If you're seven, God bless you. If you raised your hand or should have raised your hand, would you join us in this prayer right now? If you're watching us online, the Holy Spirit is right there with you. If you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life, pray with us right now. I believe he's there to transform your heart and your life. Say it with me today, Harvest Church. Let's all pray together with these six or seven folks that raised their hand. Sir, dear, dear Heavenly Father, I believe in my heart. Jesus died for my sins. And they buried him. But on the third day, you raised him from the dead for me. Jesus, you are my Lord. From this day forward, I am yours and you are mine in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we celebrate with those six folks that just made Jesus the Lord of their life? Those of you watching online, congratulations.
You're why we do this. We're so excited for you.